You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Lord, uh, convict our hearts, enlighten our minds, and resolve our wills to do thy will. This I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Uh, the big picture I want to address in this series, come in, come in, um, is it's, it's a common experience and also it's common interpretation of our experience here in contemporary society is that we are in a cultural war and we are in pro- pretty profound conflicts. And a lot of people come up with this interpretation that we live in a post-Christian era. And in terms of just numerical uh, church attendance and so on, affiliation to faith, those who call themselves traditional Christians, indeed, that has declined considerably. And perhaps we are in a post-Christian culture. But that doesn't mean it is a sanguine, easy, harmonious culture. In fact, if anything, I think we are in a very, very profound unsettledness in our culture. Many people, Christians, feel rather dismayed by that. That is, we lost our chance in Western civilization and it's going to move beyond us and we're just going to sort of fade away in the memory of, of historians. That three or four hundred years from now when people think about Christianity, they'll think of it in the same way that they might have thought of you know, the, the Visigoths or somebody like that. An ancient group of people who are curious and you know interesting in some ways, but they had their time and they faded away. Well, I'm going to argue against that. I'm going to argue that even though we are in a cultural conflict in a time of tremendous unrest in our society and transition, this in some ways is a very ripe time, a very fertile time for the Christian witness and that we have something to offer to our society that is not only profound, but it will bring healing to our culture that the gospel message here is as relevant today, even though the church in its influence may be declining, as it ever has been. And what I want to do is to engage four ideas. Hold on one second. Well, I I want to do one more thing before I get to that. Uh, I read this book recently called Adrift. I heard this man, his name is Scott Galloway, who teaches marketing at New York University. Uh, talk about this book, and I got very intrigued in it. It's kind of an idea that I've been, you know, sort of pursuing for many, many years here. And he does an analysis of the adriftness of our culture. Uh, he doesn't have a religious perspective on this, but he makes a, a pretty profound insight and critique of what is happening to our contemporary, our contemporary culture. And he says we are adrift, and hence the name of the book. What he does in this, and it'd be a pretty interesting book for you to get, he has 100 graphs that he has come up with to show this. He did all kinds of research to come up with it. This is his opening paragraph. This will sort of pave the way for what I want to try to do. We are a nation adrift. We lack neither wind nor sail. We have no shortage of captains or gear, yet... Our mighty ship flounders in a sea of partisanship, corruption, and selfishness. Our discourse is coarse. Young people are failing to form relationships. And our brightest seek individual glory at the expense of the commonwealth. Our institutions are decaying. And the connective tissue of society frays nearly beyond repair. 
On the horizon, darkness and thunder. To the west, China rises, and to the east, Europe fades. And I think that's a fairly accurate assessment of where we are overall, maybe not here in your life or here in Birmingham, but overall <laughs> in our culture. Uh, we are a nation adrift. All right, we as the church are part of this, and we're part of this kind of melee that people experience today. What are we doing? Where are we going? Are we, are, are we going to be able to make it? And he has 100 charts here to show that we are indeed, in some ways, in a perilous time. Relationships are breaking apart. Tremendous, tremendous distrust in our institutions, especially the government. We're becoming more and more partisan, intolerant, incorrigible to one another. Indeed, as he says, we are in a coarse time. All right, I think we have something very profound to say, and that's what I want to address on this. That's the name of the book there. But here's what I want to do in the four sessions that we're here today. I want to look at major ideas that are part of the cauldron of our contemporary culture, of the major conflicts in our society. Gnosticism, Epicureanism, cynicism, and what some people call, and what I call homo economia, what that means, the economic person, a person who looks at things only in terms of the economy. Now, the first three are ancient ideas, and parts of the fourth one there, I guess we could say, are also ancient because it's extremely materialistic. But Gnosticism will be our topic for today, and then next Sunday we'll talk about Epicureanism, and then cynicism, and then the final one we'll be talking about, the economic person, the church's message to each of these competing ideas. Uh, I don't think there's just one dominant idea in our culture anymore. I don't think we can reduce everything that we're going through just to one. I think what we have is sort of a, you know, uh, battle royale, if you know what that phrase means. You, know, you ever watch WWW, the you know, World Wrestling <laughs> Association? Yeah, they get about six or seven wrestlers in the ring and they're all throwing each other around. I think that's what we're going on, uh, what we're experiencing today. And I want to look at four of those wrestlers in our culture. And what does the church have to say to that? How do we respond to this? The first one I want to look at is Gnosticism. But before I do that, I want to give somewhat of a handle here, a, a, sort of a, a grasp of what what is it about the church? What is it that we believe in that can respond to these very powerful currents in our society? What are the core beliefs of who we are that defines us as Christians, as, as a member of the body of Christ, as a denomination, as a worldwide movement here, in which we can say something to these competing ideas, Gnosticism, Epicureanism, Cynicism, and the economic person? Well, I think, as you well know, that the Apostles' Creed is, is a good way to start. I'm not going to read that for you. You know it probably by heart. You say it often. The Apostles' Creed. I believe, it says. In fact, you know, some of the translations will say, we believe. I prefer the we believe because it's not just my belief. It's yours. It, my parents will be hopefully my children, grandchildren. So it's the whole worldwide belief. We believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. That claim there is at the very core of our faith. It's, in fact, it is the starting block of the Christian message. In the beginning... God said, and after each creative act, God said, that is very power by, by the very creative power of God's being, that it is good. We live in a good world. 
We live in a world that was designed by God. It's been corrupted by human malice and greed and envy and murder and hatred. But we live in a world that is blessed by the creative work of the Creator. And we ought to wake up every day in gratitude that we live in a world that is fundamentally good because a good God made it. We're not aliens in this world. We belong in this world. God just didn't sort of by hap chance create us. God put us at the very core of the creation itself. We live in a good world. Also part of the Apostles' Creed is that I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, that redemption is real. We believe this. It's not just a wish projection, as Freud would say. It's not an opium of the masses that Marx would say. It is a concrete, objective act by God that what God did in Christ was to reconcile the world to God. That we have access to this good Creator by the redemptive work of Christ. It is a real event. And that history is, is purposeful. It's not a meaningless thing. Now, it, I would say, you know, would be easy to reach a conclusion, as many people reach, that, you know, there is no real sort of rhyme and reason to things. Look at the horrible mayhem and the murders and the deaths and the millions of people that have been killed by wars and famines and meanness, cruelty. It would be in some ways easy to become sort of cynical about human history. However, though, our faith is not resting upon the fact that the world is worthless and God needs to get us out of this world. Our faith rests on the fact that God is working in the world, in human history, to transform it into a new heaven and a new earth. God has not given up on the world, even though the world has acted as though they were no God at all. And so we believe that. We give that message that the world has a purpose to it and we're part of that that you and I have this great privilege to join in the great providential work of God to restore the world, to bring in the new heaven and new earth, and that eternal life is possible. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I'm going to make a little hay out of that later on. Why is that in such an important claim of our faith, that our bodies will be resurrected? It is another way of saying that we will, we will experience eternity. That this is part of our faith. That no matter, in some ways, what Cameron said in the sermon of the day, you know, no matter how unjust the world is, God's justice will reign for eternity. Okay, these are claims, I think, that are found in the Apostles' Creed, and it represents the basic Christianity of our beliefs. All right. Before I look at these two representatives here, uh, let me explain a little bit more about the word Gnosticism. There may be a few of you, I don't know, maybe all of you know what the word literally means. Well, it literally means knowledge. The first time the word Gnosticism, it's from the Greek, it's an English transliteration of the Greek word, was used to describe an ancient religious movement was actually in the 17th century. So it, somewhat of an early, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean a late title given to a very diverse religious movement at the beginning of the Christian era. When Christianity moved out of Jerusalem and Judea into Asia Minor and then into Europe, there were all kinds of religious groups out there. Christianity didn't move into a vacuum. In fact, Christianity from the very get-go has been trying to announce its message, proclaim its story, 
in conflict with others. And one of those sort of oppositions, opposing sort of religious movements, to Christianity, we call Gnosticism. Now, in its origins, though, it was a diverse group of, of, of sort of religious figures and texts and so on. There were some common denominators to Gnosticism. One of those common denominators is that the world is dark and meaningless, created by an evil God, and our only hope is some way we can get out of it. And we have to have someone who can come down from above and liberate us by the secret knowledge. And once we get this secret knowledge and, and, and sort of get baptized into this sort of esoteric religious group here, we then can find out, and this is another one of the great themes of that diverse religious movement, that you have a spark of the divinity in you. That your body is decaying, it's prone to wickedness, but at the very core of your being is something divine. And salvation, then, is the release of that spark of divinity away from the perverse, corrupt, decaying world, the darkness of human history, into the eternal light of God. Okay, that was a very perverse, pervasive religious theme. Christianity really, really struggled with that. And many Christians didn't know that they were actually believing more Gnostic ideas than they were biblical ideas. And so it was a real serious arm wrestling match here in the early stages of the church. Now, when Christian the theology became dominant in the West, under the great sort of intellectual giants like Anselm, and, I mean, Augustine and Anselm and Thomas Aquinas and so on, Gnosticism sort of faded back. Not many people talked about it. It was a curious thing about history. I mean, it was a curiosity of of historians who wanted to understand those ancient, those early centuries of the Christian era. But uh, other than maybe just sort of indirectly, there was no one going around calling themselves Gnostics. However, there has been a renewal or revival of Gnosticism in contemporary society. That we live in a time in which one of the rivals to our claims, seen there in the tenets of the basics of our Christian faith here, is a movement that claims to be Gnostic. All right, so I want to try to understand modern Gnosticism. Not ancient Gnosticism. That's a very complicated, you know, huge text and very complicated ideas. But a lot of that has sort of percolated over these centuries now to a modern expression of them. And the first ones I want to look at are these two uh, very famous authors. Uh, anyone read... Uh, the second one there, the Da Vinci Code, anyone read that? All right, I've only looked at parts of it. Uh, anyone see the movie? Yeah, I didn't see the movie. I guess I ought to go see the movie. But um been a very influential book. I guess it's still a best bestseller, Dan Brown. The Da Vinci Code. Uh, you remember what the main plot is? Anyone remember what the main plot of the Da Vinci Code is? Is that Jesus was married? Uh, well, yes. Uh, the main plot is uh, that in the beginning the uh, Roman Catholic Church knew that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God and that uh, it came up with a set of doctrines to support its own hierarchy and authority. And one of them is that Jesus was a son of God, not a daughter of God. And that what Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code tries to bring out is that God is feminine. That the feminine principle is the divine principle. And that the church, being 
dominated by males, has suppressed the true religion. And so this rather complicated plot to finally come to that realization. Well, that's part of this kind of modern Gnosticism, that you have a spark of the divine. And it's the feminine principle. The other one here is Elaine Pagel. Um, uh, I, I, I remember reading her when I was in graduate school. I read a book called The Gnostic Paul, a very scholarly book. And then she came out with a book called The Gnostic Gospels, also a very scholarly book. Very influential scholar at Princeton for many years. I think she's retired, but she's still very influential. She's been given all kinds of awards. And in her later books, in the, la the books of the last 20 years or so, she has moved away, even though she's a first-rate scholar, I'll say that, uh, away from being just a, an analyzer of ancient text here to being a cultural commentator. And her argument today is that Gnosticism is the religion best fit for the modern experience. It, it has a principle of equality and equity to it. Uh, it is not based on any kind of hierarchy or male dominance, especially over women and so on, or, or majorities over minorities. And the reason why is because we all are divine. At our very core is a spark of the divinity. And she argues that traditional Christianity tried to suppress that. To suppress that, Irenaeus in particular, who was a very famous church father. And she wrote a book called um, Satan, and she does a pretty interesting analysis of how the Bible talks about Satan. And it's complicated if you know that. I mean, in the Old Testament, the concept of Satan is very ambiguous. And, you know, evil is presented in sort of different ways in the New Testament. And anyway, she does a pretty good analysis of that. But her conclusion is this, that the male-dominated early church came up with this doctrine of Satan to justify their vengeance against their enemies that we are entitled to retaliate, to, to persecute, to oppress our enemies here because they are satanic. Well, I think that's a completely erroneous interpretation of the, of the New Testament and the Old Testament use of the word Satan. But that's kind of her idea, that traditional Christianity is no longer relevant for an egalitarian culture. We need a religious view that ensures that all of us are the same, and that would be this kind of modern Gnosticism. We're God. All right, here are two others. Uh, you, you probably know the movie on the right. You may not know the author here, Harold Bloom on the left. Uh, you've seen the movie Matrix. There have been a number of them. The first one, by far, by a light year, was better than all the remakes of them, or the, I mean the sequels of them. But it's an interesting movie. It really is. Uh, I have to admit, it's you know, creative, innovative, technologically for sure. But there are some themes to this that many people would label as modern Gnosticism. And, and that is that we live in this unbelievably dark, destroyed world. There's no light because of some apocalyptic event that occurred. And we're just barely, barely surviving. And the machines have taken over us. And all these machines, in order to kind of keep us functioning and working, have put us into this computer matrix. We live a dream, in other words. So what's real? Well, the tangible things, the concrete things, my body is just corrupt and wicked and decaying and dark and unproductive. But it's in the, the, the life of the mind. It's in this inner world of images that we've sort of put together that we can have some sort of power and meaning and purpose in life. And even in there, we have some problems with it. But this kind of separation between dark 
and light between the Redeemer. And if you remember from the movie, they use a lot of biblical names, Trinity, Morpheus, uh, to, to show how to find salvation. You've got to get out of the realm of darkness. You've got to be liberated by the light of this kind of matrix experience. Harold Bloom, who died in 2019, was, was an incredibly influential teacher of English and literature at Yale for like four decades. Uh, I've actually read a number of his stuff. He wrote over 50 books. He is one of these, these people who could not only write, but publish every thought he had, which is remarkable. He, I, you know, he's probably a genius. I don't know. Uh, he was an amazing person. Uh, his face there, and I, I don't mean this in any pejorative way, because you probably look at my face and say, what a, what a, what a, what a pitiful face that is. <laughs> I, I, chose, I chose his face here because it depicts his profound cynicism. It really does. Uh, uh, I, I, I've learned from him. I mean, he's, he's a bright guy. I mean, highly educated, definitely, and very insightful. His writing style is, I mean, it flows like water. Uh, mine flows like, you know, somebody falling off the steps or something. Um <laughs> And so I always learn something. But after I read him, I think, you know, there's, there's no hope. I mean, the world is pretty well worthless. Uh, we live in a miserable existence here. But he's a Gnostic. He's a self-proclaimed Gnostic. And that idea is that our only hope is to find something inward. We're not going to find it outward. It's not out in the world. It's not out in creation. It's only in you, in your mind. And that is your liberation. And he calls himself a modern-day Gnostic for that reason. And he's had a tremendous influence. Now, I, I've picked these four, and i got a couple more I want to talk about, to show that, I mean, these are sort of cultural statements, academics and movies and books and so on. They express, I think, sort of a, a tide that is moving across our cultures that, in a way, because we've... We we're not able to solve the problems of war and poverty and hatred and all that. Maybe we ought to just sort of give up on all this and find some sort of release or escape from the stranglehold that misery and darkness have on us. Maybe that's, that's the only way to do it. And these people are giving articulation to that kind of idea. Uh, you know what the one on the left is? Any of you have one of these contraptions? Meta? You got the meta? You? No. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't have one. I don't plan to have one. And I hope nobody else has one, by the way. It's the latest Zuckerberg effort. This is going to sound cynical on my part. To take over the world. Um, I hear the stock value is declining, which is good news. Um, but uh, this is the, the, the Facebook of, the, of just the individual. You know, Normal Facebook, you connect with other people out there in this sort of image world. But here, you don't need anybody. You, you don't need a soul alive, I guess, uh, to be in this meta. You just put it on, and you can kind of construct the world yourself. Any of you have done it? I mean, I, I, I saw a YouTube thing on it once, and it's all just interior. You just put it on, and you can make your own world. You can like the video games, I guess, that so many people get into. No telling what people would come up with. What would you do if you were the only person in the world you could come up with, John? <laughs> I don't know if I would want to, you know, live around a bunch of people who felt like they were the only conscious, deliberating being in the world. That's what they're promised. 
promising. That's what Zuckerberg is promising in Facebook. Uh, th- that, in a way, is a symbol of this kind of Gnostic spirit. We got it. We got to create the world to our image because, as it is, there's it's just incorrigible to any kind of values. It's it's just this kind of relentless bad story, and we got to conquer it. We got to get out of you know the medieval period and the corruption of our society. We got to get out of all that. Now, the building over on the right is called the Sam. Etor, S-A-M-I-T-A-U-R, building in, in Culverton, California, which is, I think, a Los Angeles suburb. Any of you have seen this building? Any been out there to see this? I hope one of these days to see it. All right, the, um, the architect who built this building, Cliff, uh, uh, Cliff Owen Moss, uh, calls himself a Gnostic. He's written a book called Gnostic architecture. Very influential. I mean, if there is some award for an architect, he has probably won it. Very influential. And there was a very, very wealthy group of people in Los Angeles that kind of got committed to his spirit of architecture. Uh, and they they bought a, a old part of uh, that part of Los Angeles and set aside property there for him to design 20 buildings with this kind of spirit to it. The word Samator is the middle name of this family. I forget the man's name. Her name is Lynette Samator Smith. And so they had this kind of concept that they wanted to create a new reality, one not held bondage by geometry, not restricted to tradition, that in a way it gives us as much creativity as we can so that we can some way escape out of the stultifying and suffocating confines of an overly industrialized, materialistic society. And this is probably his greatest building here. I don't know how it stands. It's a, it's a remarkable building, five stories high. But what he says, that is, uh, what Moss argues, is that he wanted to come up with a visual messenger. That's his term, messenger that he wanted to design buildings that would come and announce things to us, like an angel, messenger, or an apostle, to tell us, here's a new way of thinking, here's a new way of living. We, we can get out of these things that have strangled us all these centuries. And this new architecture can give us some sort of liberation and, 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 and uh, power to control our lives, is that we can recreate reality based upon what we want to uh, value the most. Uh, And he felt that Gnosticism was kind of the spirit that best expressed this new need in our society. Well, um, all that, I think, is impressive, uh, is influential, uh, and for many people very contemporary and powerful. However, though, I think there are serious consequences. And part of what this book, Scott Galloway's book, Adrift, tries to show is what's happening to our culture when we become so individualistic where all I want is just that mass. Or we become so disregarding, uncommitted to transforming a a, a marred and harmed world that we break off from relationships and we distrust 
collective groups and so on. What happens to a culture in which we are moving away towards this new new Gnosticism? This is my interpretation. Yes? Don't one and three somewhat reflect the early, early Greek philosophers, pre-Christian philosophers? Oh, yeah, yeah. About, about the world and how terrible it is and it, we're just waiting for a spirit to, right. to release us. Right. It's, not, it's not anything all that particularly new. Oh, no, 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 no. The new Gnosticism is a revival of old Gnostic ideas. Yeah, and one of them is this dualistic idea that the world is dark and evil, that the body is basically just a collection of decaying things, and your spirit is eternal and divine, and the best thing you can do is get, somehow liberate yourself. From all. Well, I think a consequence of this, and we can see this in our, our culture, is that we are aliens in a hostile and dark world. That this whole feeling of alienation, I think, is growing more and more in our, our society. Now, maybe not among you and your friends and your, your society, but on a whole, I mean, the, the marriage rate is, is, is declining quite rapidly. He shows this, some graphs about that. The, the involvement with other people is declining, like organizations, benevolent groups, and so on, is declining quite rapidly. Uh, people are very, very reluctant to go out and meet strangers. In fact, when I heard him interview, he said one of his strongest advice that he gives people is especially to men. Our contemporary society is hurting men more than women, statistically. Men are becoming more alienated in our culture. Is that he tells, especially young adults, male, young adult males, you need to meet at least one stranger every day. We're becoming more uncomfortable around strangers. We're becoming suspicious about what we cannot control and what is in any way challenging and somewhat sort of tense for us. And so we're retreating and we're becoming more alien. We see the world as more alien in the world. I mean, uh, more alien. We don't know how to fit. There's this kind of sense of being disjointed I think that is growing because we see the world basically as more dark, just like in the Matrix. How can I get out of this? Now, of course, the, in the movie, the machines are malevolent. They're not benevolent at all. But nonetheless, the world that they try to get out of is just this kind of collapsed industrial society. And maybe, you know, more and more people are thinking that way. Not everyone, but I do think that idea of alienation, we're becoming more alienated. Um, my wife and I were talking about this earlier. The second largest cause for deaths among 14 to 25-year-olds is suicide. Um, uh, Facebook, I know I'm slamming Facebook. Uh, I may get a letter from a lawyer here in a minute uh, <laughs> representing Facebook. Uh, but um, the, the amount of uh, un uh, uh, melees and self-rejection and body harm, especially among teenage girls who are fixated on Facebook, is astronomically rising. Or since, you know, I'm not okay, even though they're so connected to all these other people, it's just, it's a superficial connection. The down and dirty of human lives, the, the sort of, the, the challenges and compromises all of us have to make in our relationships is something we just can't do anymore. And so if we can't fathom a make-believe world that's perfect for us, we we turn in on ourselves, and that's, that's exactly what's happening, and in particular with a lot of teenage girls because of this. These are all facts. I think our culture has become more alienated. 
Also, salvation is more individualistic. Even though there's a strong emphasis on social justice in our society, that's another set of ideas. But this new Gnosticism is mainly about how you get out of your problems. It's the therapeutic culture reduced to one person. You. You're God. The world is corrupt. we got to get out of it. And so there's strong emphasis on individualism. i got to pick up my pace here. Um, then, thirdly, we are disembodied souls. The soul and the body are different things, like oil and water. You can do whatever you want to with your body as long as your soul is this way or vice versa. They're two different things. This has become, I think, almost a dogma in our contemporary society. And then fourth, residual emotions. Loneliness, fear, and disquieted. These are emotions that I think are quite dominant in our society. All right, how shall we respond to this? We live in a culture in which no one... I mean, you can go parts of society in which the Christian message is as alien as maybe Calculus 4 would be to them. So how do we talk to people like this? How do we communicate to the new Gnostic influence in our society? Well, first of all, we need... I believe this is appropriate for us here in 2022 that our primary way of stepping into culture, primary way of addressing these challenges to us, is that we offer healing to our culture, not condemnation. I don't think we're going to get very far. If The first thing we say to a new Gnostic is that I want you to know you're damned. We're not going to get very far because they have already rejected that message. That would just reinforce them in their, their kind of ideas. I think our best approach to this is that we offer a way to bring healing to an alienated culture. We offer a way to reconcile people, not only with others, but with themselves, the body and soul. That in a way, we are sort of physicians on behalf of the great physician. That our message of that we live in a good world, this goes to number two, that's full of beauty here. That even though it has been in a way scratched profoundly and scarred by human meanness and wickedness and ignorance and all this. Nonetheless, at its very core lies something beautiful and good and we have a way to participate in it, to grow it, and to spread it. To be alive with the world rather than pushing it away, that would be a symbol of new Gnosticism. We ought to have this the symbol of a giant hug that the church here is a way to embrace the world, not to flee it. It's a way to bring out the inherent goodness of it, not to deny it. And then thirdly, I think we as, because of the redemptive work of Christ, because of the power of the Holy Spirit that works across the board, not just among us, but across the board, from, you know, from every moment of new life to the darkest moment that a soul can be in, we need to believe that the Holy Spirit is there. And because of that, we can have hope. We can have hope. No matter how bad things may be, there is hope. And why is that? It's because of God. What God has done in Christ for us. So there's hope for the earth and there's hope for the body. Uh, just parenthetically here, um, I have a dear friend that's old and aging and perhaps dying. 
uh, been in the hospital a number of days, and I was with him yesterday, and I mean, he, he was a great man, not only a dear person, but a great man, and he should be honored. Uh, he should be honored. But his body is, he's 91. It's, it's not going to last much longer. Uh, and you'd think, oh, what a shame. And it, there is, I have to admit, I mean, I've been around people. They shouldn't have died the way they died. I know that. Is it shameful that he's grown old and die, will die of old age? Is, is there something wrong about that? Well, see, what I want to argue is that no, there's nothing wrong with that. It's horrible. It's a, it's a strain to go through. And sometimes, you know, this could be personal for all of us. You know, we've seen like cancer come and just eat away a body. But the fact that we grow old and things wear out and we return to dust is the way of the world. And it's not the final word for our body as well. Even though my friend is dying, he will be raised. Resurrection of the body, according to the Apostles' Creed. And so we can have hope for that. Death is not the victor over this. It's not the last word. When he dies, he won't just die into the past. He will die into God's future. This is what we have to say to a world that suffers you know, the effects of death in all its forms. And then finally, I've got it, I know I'm supposed to be finished here in a couple of minutes. Um, I think one of the great things that we can offer to our society that sort of sees a war between the body and the soul is that we're really one thing. We're one person. I'm not two people. I'm one person. I am Dennis L. Sansom, who is an ensouled body. I'm not just my hands or my heart. I have a soul. And I am an embodied soul. What my soul experiences, my body experiences. I think one of the great things about communion is that you take a spiritual truth in a physical form. And it becomes part of your body. In soul, body, embodied soul. We are one in this regard. And we can appreciate the vast experiences that we have, not only intellectually and spiritually, but physically as well. The eating of good food, the joy of a handshake and a hug, the bliss of some sense of great wonder and mystery and worship that we are privileged to have. All these are part of our experiences that God has given us. We're not at war within ourselves, that we can make peace with us. Now, of course, people struggle with issues. I've struggled with issues. I suspect you've struggled with issues. But at the core of who we are is the wonderful creation of God breathing into dust and making us living souls. This is, I think, a great message that we can offer to our society. We do not have to be at war with ourselves. i got a couple of minutes here. Anyone want to make a comment or, or, or question or maybe another illustration that you think would fit this? Anyone? Go ahead, then over here, yeah. Go ahead. Is not perhaps technology part of the root of our problems? We no longer are required to speak face to face. You see young adults and teenagers tapping away all the time, and they don't write, they don't speak, they just ride the electronic waves, and that has separated us. Right. Yeah, and, and right. I, I've made a conscious effort with my grandchildren to expose them to things other than that right. when I get an opportunity to. Uh, he, he's got a chart in there of 
the various generations, how many times they open their phone. You know, you got your iPhone or whatever smartphone with you. How many times a day do you look at it? Us old fuddies here, we look at it, I don't know, average 20, something like that times a day. You know, 13 to 14-year-olds look at it something like 150 times a day. I mean, I taught college for 34 years. In the last five years, uh, with the exception of Mason over here, who was a student, I rarely ever saw their faces. They were looking at their phone. That's part of it. I think so. Yes? Is Scientology part of this? Well, you could put a lot of what one would call new age movements like Scientology in it. Because it's dualistic. It's an escape. Salvation is an escape. Yeah, here's my point. And I'll be adamant about this. For us, as Christians, who take the witness of Scripture seriously and the great profound events in human history, salvation is not an escape. It is a restoration of who we are, not an escape from who we are. That's at the core of our message. Good point. Any Anyone else? Beverly? Well, I just have a comment about the role of Jesus with women. <clears throat> and if there is going to be issues with women today feeling like the Christian faith puts down women, they have not truly studied Jesus with women in the New Testament. In a shame-honor culture, he met women time after time who were in deep shame there, but he raised them up to honor and heal and holiness. So he was a champion for women, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, speak, very much so. And you know, he, he was a champion of the sick. He mingled with sick people. He was champion of sinners, like you and me. I mean, he mingled with prostitutes of all people. They did not have shame. And why is that? Because even though their lives may be you know, marred by disease, even though they may be shamed by culture, they nonetheless were an act of God's good creative work. This is part of the healing I think we can bring. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.